Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast will be about fighter jets, or to be more precise, the idea of delivering more fighter jets to Ukraine. Conversations about how to support Ukraine have moved on from, from tanks, remember the court, their campaign to free the leopards, to the issue of fighter jets. Um, there's some countries that have already delivered. Poland and Slovakia have recently delivered MiG-29s, and the calls are growing louder for other countries to deliver fighter jets to Ukraine. So we're going to look into why Ukraine needs fighter jets, who might give them, what's going on at the moment, what are the risks of escalation, and how does this fit into the talk which there is everywhere about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And to help me and all of our listeners make sense of this, we have a very special guest, Gustav Gressel, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, based in our Berlin office, who's been watching every twist and turn in the conflict in Ukraine. In fact, uh, has been watching it from well before the, when this particular war started, and he's going to help us make sense of this today. Hi, Gustav. Hello. Thanks for having me. Great, Gustav. So maybe before we go into these different questions, you can start by giving us a, a bit of a context uh, about where we're at in the the conflict at the moment with this counteroffensive, and and maybe situate the jets into that bigger picture. Okay, so the bigger picture is that basically Russia has exhausted much of its offensive power due to the quite inefficient way to use its ground forces in the winter or spring offensive, whatever you want to call it. Uh, They tried to capture the uh, Donetsk Oblast of Ukraine, and that didn't go all too well. Um, Ukraine, in the meantime, has been trying to preserve as many forces as it can. It has pulled out some of its best brigades out of the fight to re-equip them, uh, to train them. It has also assembled uh, new brigades, uh, new fighting formations with Western equipment, uh, has training them. And now, of course, everybody is sort of uh, expecting a Ukrainian counteroffensive to retake uh, territory. Most of most of people uh, expect that to happen in the south. I'd be a bit more cautious. I guess Ukrainians will be quite opportunistic, depending on where Russian defensives will be the weakest. And to probe this, we saw a lot of attacks. First of all, attacks on supply depots, ammunition, fuel. Uh, transportation lines that will inhibit Russia's ability to resupply and move reserves uh, if a counteroffensive happens. And the second thing is sort of probing attacks, like going across the Dnieper River with small special forces detachment, pushing the Russians back in Bakhmut, all of a sudden uh, other probations of the front to basically see how strong are the defenses there, what's the reaction time of Russian reserves, do they really bother, are they well prepared, uh, or are they not? Uh, and I guess that will go on for a bit of a time until Ukrainians have a good picture and where Russian defenses are weakest, and then they will um, sort of poke that because they have to make most of the limited material they have. So they have to pick a weak spot to really make a mark uh, and show the West and their own domestic 
constituency that they are capable of regaining territory. So are we expecting something as dramatic as the counteroffensive in the summer of, of last year in 2022, when I think many people were surprised at how much territory was recovered so quickly, not least the Russians? I think expectations are even higher, particularly because there's more Western equipment there. So especially in the West, there's kind of this anxious waiting with people, uh, sort of how much sense may delivering XYZ military equipment. Uh, but also in Ukraine, uh, now the kind of pool Ukraine has for conducting offensive operations on forces is much larger than it was last year. The problem, of course, is uh, Russian defenses are also denser and the Russians also have more forces uh, in spare than, than last summer where they were particularly weak. So I think it's sort of roughly going to get to the dimensions we saw last year. Anything above that would be a surprise. Um, but, you know, this is warfare. A lot of things can go wrong because, you know, people uh, might excel or fail at one or the other end. So uh, it's pretty much an, an open issue. Ukraine has the chance to do good, but uh, a chance is never something that is really secure. And how much of the territory that was recaptured last summer has Ukraine managed to, to hold? Most of it. Uh, so actually only in Luhansk Oblast, uh, Ukraine was a bit pushed back from what they regained last year. Uh, otherwise, Russian offensive concentrated very much uh, on uh, Donetsk Oblast, where the Ukrainians haven't had a chance to kind of launch a counteroffensive. There are rumors now that they might actually pick that oblast to uh, to conduct their counteroffensive. Um, I'm a bit skeptical, but well, let's see. And uh, sort of Bakhmut, Avdivka, Marinka, these in Marinka basically the front line has actually shifted for like 200 meters over the course of uh, almost one and a half year. I I was in 2016. I was in Marinka and and visited sort of uh, part of the front, 50 meters behind the actual front front line. I I got concussions from a Ukrainian tank firing, and I was not aware that he was next next to us. Um, so I I recognize some of the terrain when I see the pictures about the fighting there, and it hasn't hasn't really shifted for one and a half years, and that that gives an indication on the bitterness and, and kind of uh, slow pace of, of this spring offensive that it, despite inducing heavy losses, um, it just didn't progress. So why don't we start talking about fighter jets then? Can you explain to listeners why Ukraine needs uh, fighter jets, what it would be for, you know, how this fits in? Is it part of the counteroffensive or is this after the counteroffensive that the fighter jets are needed? Well, I think it's 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 a pretty much not so much related topic. So um, the ability to drive away the Russian Air Force um rests predominantly on the Ukrainian side on surface-to-air missiles and air defense measures, and that will continue to be so. However, in all the weak phases and uh, sort of in the terrain that is in between these air defense zones, uh, and Ukraine is a huge country, you know, you don't have, even even at the beginning of the war, there wasn't an air defense system everywhere. You have fighter patrols conducted by Ukrainian Air Force with fighter jets that sort of try to at least put Russian aircraft at risk if they enter Ukrainian airspace. There were two, or there was one historic contingency that was particularly important. That was sort of the first three days of the war when Russian managed to 
suppress damage um, a lot, if not most, of Ukrainian's larger air defense systems, by especially by electronic attack. And Ukrainians needed two, three days to reposition their missiles and to repair some of the, or most of the damaged equipment uh, and bring it back in order. And uh, at that sort of, you heard the stories about the ghost of Kiev. At that time, the Ukrainian Air Force really had to get out, had to try to at least catch whatever plane they, they got a hold on just to, to keep the Russian air force at risk and uh, prevent them from freely roaming across Ukraine uh, and bombing cities to oblivion. Uh, we might see uh, another moment like this this summer, not because of the ability of the Russian air force to totally damage Ukrainian air defense systems again, but because of uh, Soviet legacy air defense systems running out and the West sort of trying to match production and deliveries, but that is, you know, that you, you can't deliver air defense systems you haven't produced yet. Uh, so we are a bit in a supply crunch. Uh, and there's some concerns that, Again, Ukrainian Air Force will be drawn out into the fight more than they would like to be and take losses more than uh, they'd like to suffer. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we will have to rush and hurry a decision on which plane uh, needs to be next um, because uh, Ukraine running out of jets would be a bad perspective, regardless on sort of the quality of the jets they get. So where are they in terms of their jets? I mean, you you um, have been following all of their military supplies from the very beginning. What jets do they have at the moment? Who's delivered some? What do they want to get hold of? The most important jets they have are the Sukhoi-27 uh, and the MiG-29 Interceptor. Uh, these are both basically baseline versions of these jets as they were by the end of the Cold War, mid-80s and 80s Soviet technology. They have received further ground attack aircraft from Bulgaria, 12 uh, Sukhoi Su-25. They have received uh, MiG-29 fighter jet spare parts, under quotation mark, uh, from Bulgaria, Slovakia and Poland. These spare parts, under quotation mark, so they were not flying aircraft delivered, but quite a lot of parts allowed Ukrainian to assemble more MiG-29 than they had before the war. And now, of course, in spring, they got from Poland and Slovakia another batch of MiG-29 fighter aircraft, uh, 13 from Slovakia, and also a squadron, sort of the same number from Poland. Uh, the problem with these aircraft of why Ukraine wants to transition to Western fighter jets is, first of all, the ammunition issues. So the missiles that they also got from Poland, Slovakia, and other countries uh, are running short. Ukraine used to produce missiles for these fighter jets in the past. We don't know the exact number of their stocks, uh, but these missiles are roughly comparable to US missiles of the 1970s Vietnam era with a bit more range. Um, they sort of have a cumbersome guidance system that would need the Ukrainian fighter jet to continuously throw a radar beam at the Russian aircraft, uh, illuminating it for the missile to find the target, which makes, of course, any Russian aircraft aware that it's being targeted, whereas Western fighter jets have a much more silent mode of operating their radar, and uh, they have missiles that have their own radar, so once the Russian fighter jet knows that it's under attack, it already has a missile uh, quite close, and it doesn't reveal the position of the attacking aircraft. Uh, that would allow Ukraine, of course, to pursue the same 
counter-air patrols and tactics as it does now, but with a high degree of safety for its own pilots and aircraft. And that's why they're particularly keen on getting getting American fighter jets. F-16s. Yes, they want F-16s because they are uh, sort of the fighter jet that is the leopard of the skies. You know, you have these fighter aircrafts anywhere. Of course, there are tricks to that, just like with the leopards. There are different variations, different stages, um, uh, different degrees of maturity of its radar system, its electronic warfare system. And uh, like with the leopards, you don't get the best and the brightest and the newest. You probably get used elderly ones still they're better than what uh, ukrainians have now um the problem with f-16 is it has a very fragile landing gear and it's an air force jet so it's used to fly off well-made airstrips which ukrainian airstrips don't necessarily qualify for uh, and Ukrainian highways and improvised airstrips where they're flying off most of their missions uh, actually don't qualify at all. So one might discuss that. I think F-18, this is a carrier-based aircraft, is more suitable because once you're on a carrier, you know, you don't care so much. You, you don't have the, the huge maintenance tail that land-based aircraft have and U.S. Navy fighter planes usually are easier to maintain. And once you have a, a, an aircraft that is capable to land on a carrier, it's pretty forgiving in how you mistreat it on improvised runways. Or the Swedish Gripen, which is not a carrier-based aircraft, but it was meant to be operated in the same sort of out-of-base conditions as Ukrainians do. But uh, actually, to be honest, uh, I think that's a secondary question. The, the, the thing that needs to be sorted out over the coming month is... Um, when Ukrainians will get their new fighter jets, because it will take considerable time to train maintenance personnel. This is a bit more complicated than sending tanks, and especially sort of to sort out the logistical issues with with introducing fighter jets. This will take several months. So if we assume that the counteroffensive will draw out the Ukrainian air force and they will have attrition and losses beyond what they have suffered so far, we should start getting to gears preparing now that we can resupply Ukraine once the counteroffensive is over. So Germany was in the eye of the storm of the the leopard campaign. Free the leopards was a, a message mainly delivered to the Bundeskanzleramt. Even if uh, it turned out that other countries were maybe less able to actually deliver tanks than they had seemed uh, while trying to put the blame onto the Germans, who is going to be in the firing line or in the in the kind of uh, front line of this campaign for for jets? Well, now it's it's the White House. So, and that's part of the problem because it's easier to put pressure on Germany than it is to put pressure on the United States. But basically, uh, the United States has the same position as Germany had during the tank debate, because even though, for example, F-16, you could get Dutch F-16 or or used F-16 from other countries, not the United States, or F-18s who are phased out in Finland and phased out in Spain and in Australia um, and could be delivered to Ukraine. Uh, they are all U.S.-made jets, uh, and and even the Swedish Gripen has a lot of U.S.-made parts in it. So you would need a a consensus with Washington to deliver them, just as much as you needed uh, to d- deliver Polish Leopard tools to Ukraine. You also needed consensus with Berlin because it was a, a German tank. So they are now in in the eyes of this storm. 
However, of course, uh, given given the fact that that US does very much and very a lot of stuff on on other fronts of this war, uh, of course, building up public pressure and everybody is def- dependent on the US for their own security, uh, it is much harder to to kind of conduct a PR campaign there. Uh, but in terms of the discussion, it's pretty much uh, even with all the sort of non-arguments, it's even sort of it's, it's very much the same as uh, as with the Leopard 2 debate just uh, in the air domain. So a lot of the ex-aggregations that this will be sort of direct slippery slope into World War Three, or or sort of these kind of positive over-expectations that, you know, with um, F-16 delivers, Ukraine will win the war in a couple of weeks. That That's all nonsense in, in one way or the other. Um, it's basically supplementing an existing capability Ukrainians have with a gradually better system and ones where the logistical chain uh, so supplying new uh, new spare parts, uh, ammunition, etc., is under our own domestic control. So you, we can give Ukrainians a long-term perspective on maintaining the thing. Um, uh, that's the advantage of a Western fighter jet, not not kind of a strategic decision of whether or not we'll allow Ukraine uh, a victory within fourteen days. That's not on the not in the cards. So the U.S. is the most important decision maker, but there are other countries that have already started training pilots for example the uk did that when zelensky went to visit the uk earlier how far has that gone well actually the us have a similar program it was camouflaged under the excuse that we uh, sort of ukraine has more fighter pilots than it has fighter planes so we need to in order to sort of keep these reserve pilots the ukrainian air force has in flyable conditions we need to let them fly elsewhere so that they don't least lose their skills and under this excuse a lot of uh, air forces have let ukrainian uh, officers pilots uh, fly simulators or even real jets so this is pretty far the of course the the challenge that is uh, first of all implementing the logistical chain that is needed to supply or to maintain an aircraft in Ukraine itself. The second thing that is sort of also important for the pilot is to, to uh, readjust the command and control equipment. Uh, a lot of that is actually being done for air defense purposes because now Ukraine operates a lot of air defense missiles that are working according to NATO standards. So they get new signaling equipment, new radar systems um, that use different data formats than the Soviet ones. So this is like... Windows and apples, you know, um, you you either have this computer or that computer, and uh, programs aren't interchangeable. The same is with like Soviet and and NATO uh, standard radars and communication networks. So a lot of that is already done, but of course you then need to train and and equip the Ukrainian air force also in tactical ways how to specifically use these aircraft in the roles intended in Ukraine to the maximum effect. And what do you think the international community has learned from the Leopard 2 saga? Do you think there'll be a different way of organizing this debate going forward? Unfortunately, not too much, because we see quite a repetition of the same quagmire. And the problem is sort of a decision will have the domestic pressure and the international pressure to make a decision on the fighter issue will only increase. Uh, And instead of getting on top of the curve, uh, the Biden administration kind of drags feet and tries to avoid the issue. And the longer they try to avoid it, the harder it will hit them because the more the, the repercussions of not deciding on the issue will, will come to the surface. 
Um, we see that a little bit now on the discussion on on Ukraine and air defense capabilities and and, and missile sustainment, etc. Uh, and I think over the summer the situation will not get any better. And then there will be real domestic pressure, and we'll get closer to the elections, uh, and uh, Republicans will have a good angle of attack on that. So. I, I would recommend getting a decision closer, uh, talk to as many allies as possible before making a decision and any announcement and sort of how they would like to progress on the matter and then sort of have assemble a coalition beforehand and then basically come to the press with the result. Um, uh, that gives you most of the sort of positive vibes on the matter and you avoid the the quagmire. So you, one of the things you mentioned earlier was the debate about the dangers of escalation. How do you? What do you think of as the dangers of escalation from fighter jets? Well, on this is actually minor, uh, and I think that is something I think the Americans, by and large, understand. So the problem is, it does does kind of will F sixteen grant Ukraine with a capability. Uh, to decisively defeat the Russians, I don't think so. And then it it would depend on the kind of weapons you would you would give Ukrainians with these fighters. You can give them air defense weapons uh, only, and there will not be much of a use in the air to ground role. And beside that, uh, Russia has extremely strong air defense systems. Um, they are well capable of detecting fighter jets uh, coming close to the front. Ukrainian air force has to avoid them at all the costs. That's why they're using for for their long-range attacks, kind of drones and everything that slips below the, the radar horizon of these powerful air defense systems, etc. So the chance that actually to pull an air offensive against Russian troops with, with these fighter jets is extremely remote. Uh, also, Ukraine, for the sake of bases, uh, landable airstrips, need to disperse their assets, will not be able to operate a very tall number of these fighter jets. These are assets to plug holes in the air defense umbrella, and they will continue to do so. Uh, I, I think what is more relevant to American hesitation here is they fear the risk that, for example, an advanced missile carried by such an aircraft goes off and flies into Russian territory and will be then uh, be analyzed by the Russians and the Chinese, reverse engineered, or at least they start to develop countermeasures against it. They are, I think, a bit more afraid of the risk of embarrassment than escalation. If uh, some, especially if we talk about elderly planes, they will not do as good as uh, they think they, or people now think they could. And Taiwan has the same bunch of elderly F-16s, etc., and that would give particularly the Chinese a bravo chant that they might try something stupid. Uh, I think these are more the, the real uh, repercussions that the Biden administration is afraid about, not, not the escalation dominance thing. Okay, we're coming up to the end of our, our time. Can, can you maybe get your crystal ball out a bit and tell us how you think this is the conflict is, is going to go on? Because... Obviously, you know, we everyone will wait and see what happens in this counteroffensive. Um, I think many people on the Ukrainian side have said that they want to recapture as much territory as possible. But then there is, I think, a hope in some places that having um, got close to the 22nd of, of February borders, that it will then be possible to try and de-escalate uh, and to try and move into a different phase before the, the US elections take place. Do you think that that's a realistic possibility? 
I think the chances for this are unfortunately low. I know this is most of the expectation to kind of have one decisive counteroffensive, and then Putin comes to his senses and sees that the war is not winnable on his terms and starts negotiating. I fear that, yes, uh, so I hope that Ukrainian counteroffensive is operative success. Um, I, I guess the chances are like 70% in favor of Ukraine, 30% against that this will happen. But then equally, I would think the uh, the chances of this progressing is that Putin will declare another round of mobilization. Um, uh, the Russian army has fallen short of all declared aims of recruiting new personnel. The, the lack of personnel, again, become extremely evident um, after the counteroffensive and try for another winter. He is still determined to end the war on his terms and he thinks he can outsit democracies and that sort of uh, the election, the disruption with election campaigns. We, we need to remember he's highly dismissive of free and fair elections. That's something that is for him a matter of weakness, indecisiveness and decadence. Will provide an opportunity to kind of drive home a home victory and that the US will be distracted and Europeans will be incapable. And I think sort of the point to which he will start to negotiate seriously will come after the US elections the earliest. And I will try to drag the war across that timeline, at least. Okay, well, we will definitely come back and talk to you again uh, before then. Maybe one final thing. What is there going to be a decision point where the the fighter jets thing comes to a head where people are, are going to expect uh, some kind of um, move? Or do you think this is just something that will, will kind of carry on rumbling away? I think the Vilnius NATO summit will increase political pressure because I don't see Ukrainians winning on the NATO accession issue. And I see especially those countries who are very skeptical about NATO accession of Ukraine, like the Netherlands, like France, very forward leaning on delivering fighters. Uh, for them, this is kind of a compensation. And no, you don't get into NATO, but we'll give you the stuff to defend yourself. That's that's the logic carried by them. And I think around before and, and especially after the Vilnius summit, this kind of fight will be dragged into the open and the non-enlargers will be under increased pressure to kind of live up to the second part of their idea to provide Ukraine with stuff. And to be honest, also here, the Biden administration hasn't fully made up its mind uh, how to deal with that issue as well, uh, NATO enlargement. They are divided on the issue and uh, sort of the final decision on how to progress with the fighter jet saga will depend on how they come out of, of this summit, uh, I guess. Great. So we'll come back, as I said, uh, to you again in the in the weeks and months ahead. But before that, there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Stuff. I'm reading Faustian Bargain, the Soviet-German partnership and the regions of the Second World War uh, by Ian Orner uh, Johnson. Uh, I or uh, I started reading it. Uh, the start is very promising. It's it's about especially the military cooperation between the Soviet Union and Germany. Uh, how sort of after Apollo or even before Apollo, uh, these sort of the 
German-Soviet desire to modernize and to break their political isolation after Versailles and uh, and the Bolshevik Revolution sort of brought these two very antagonistic um, powers together, how their cooperation played out, how these enabled both countries to modernize militarily. And uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, sort of the start is very promising. It looks really interesting. Also for me, it's sort of the more I stumble into that and the more I read, I, I have sort of flashback memories of what the Russians um, during their new look reform time try to extract from from the German-speaking world to tell you. Um, so these were, it, it was not only technical modernization, but they also were very much interested, like they were then, like in operative planning and in procedures, in officers training, etc. cetera, uh, because they they had an idea, like they did in the 30s, that, that they were not up to stake and they had a particular fond or uh, haunting memory of how effective the kind of German way of wedge war is. And that's why they approached Rheinmetall for their training center, etc. Uh, fortunately, of course, this time, unlike the Red Army, the current Russian army, I think from all they got out of it, uh, they have implemented close to nothing. Uh, and that's very fortunate this time. Okay. I'm going to recommend a piece by Gustav Grasso on why um, Ukraine needs fighter jets, which is on our website, an ECFR article. So warmly recommend that. We'll put links up to all these things on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do go to whatever platform you've used to download this podcast and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, we would be extremely grateful if you could give us a review and a rating because that will help bring other people to the podcast. But for now, from Gustav Kresser and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.